have found recently is, you know, in the COVID area, you have a lot of case reports and case series. If in, are people going to be able to read all of this stuff or is there a way to summarize it somehow? Well, the technology today allows us to do that. My name is uh, Smita Sinner and I'd like to welcome you to another episode on our Global Kitchen Podcast. Um, and I have with me Roberto Pecopilio, who needs no introduction, but hi Roberto. Smita. Great, so today Roberto and I are going to chat to uh, people at Cochrane. Everybody knows Cochrane, but we're going to specifically focus on Cochrane, kidney and transplant. So I will invite our, our panellists to, to speak and introduce themselves. So I'll start with Jonathan Craig. Hi, thanks everyone for the opportunity. So, Jonathan Craig, I'm a paediatric nephrologist and I work in, at Flinders University uh, in Adelaide, Australia. Thanks, Jonathan. And then we have Elizabeth Hodson. I'm, I'm a, uh, a paediatric nephrologist also, um, but retired now, but I work uh, at the uh, Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney in the Centre for Kidney Research. Thank you, Elizabeth. And I'm looking forward to hearing about um, your contribution over the years um, towards the Cochrane Reviews. Um, Giovanni Stripoli? Yes, uh, Giovanni Stripoli. Uh, I'm a nephrologist and work at the University of Bari in Italy, having uh, spent several years prior to this working in Sydney University. Okay, and last but not least, we've got Edmund Yin Manchung, and Edmund um, is one of the I hope the other three won't mind. Perhaps one of the younger members of the group. So really looking forward to hearing about um, what you've been doing and, and the future. So Edmund, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, hi there. I'm uh, Edmund Strong. I'm an adult nephrologist currently uh, doing a full-time PhD at the Centre for Kidney Research at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. And got um, newly invited to the editorial board uh, for Cochrane Kidney and Transplants this year. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to this group. I mean, since I was a resident, I've been, you know, uh, reading their stuff and learning so much. But I wanted to go back to some years ago. Um, I understand, Jonathan, that uh, this is an anniversary year for Cochrane. So 20 years of um, Cochrane um, in, in Sydney, at least. But... Um, Tell us how the whole thing started. It seems I started somewhere else, right? So, um, yeah, indeed. So, twenty years last year, I think. But twenty, but last year was a year that many of us would want to forget. So, uh, we're going to have our twenty-year celebration at another time. So, uh, so Cochrane originated in the UK. Uh, a guy called Ian Chalmers, who is a uh, obstetrician gynaecologist, and he got together with some of his friends uh, and looked at the evidence supporting perinatal care. Um, a guy called Murray Enkin, this was the days before Cochrane, and what he discovered was a few things. The first is that actually the evidence supporting standard routine clinical care of women was really not as robust as what you know people would like. In fact, I think he ended up giving himself or one of his colleagues the wooden spoon of ONG for the you know least evidence-based specialty uh, in the world. 
Um, and so he, so he started off with really just a systematic overview of randomized trials in, in perinatal medicine. Um, and then he got together with some other colleagues and so thought, well, if we can do this in perinatal medicine, we can look at the totality of evidence in that specialty, uh, highlight a whole bunch of gaps of critical uh clinical questions that are so important to clinicians and patients, realize that there are lots of gaps, gaps that need to be filled, uh, uncertainties, then that's something that probably is applicable more broadly across medicine. So that, that spurned off uh, Cochrane collaboration as it was then, really a bottom-up sort of organic swarm form organization uh, mostly of clinicians who, who basically adopted that method of looking at uh, all of the trials in those areas, systematically, rigorously reviewing them in a way that really hadn't been done before on a much larger scale, uh, and then publishing them. Um, and so in those days, actually, these were CDs, right? This wasn't web, this was CDs. Everyone used to get these <laughs> CDs. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous now, but at the time, this is a big you know, it's a big step forward because prior to that it was books and other things. And so these these CDs were produced regularly. So it wasn't just a one-off, let's look at the totality of the evidence in any given area. Let's look and we'll keep looking at these things and we're going to publish these and, and distribute them worldwide. And it was also bottom-up because unlike... Um, other journals, and there's some similarities with journals, uh, this, it, it was up to uh, review groups who are basically editorial groups who used to work and still do work with authors who want to do reviews. So we didn't get the finished product and say, well, you know, that's great, but you should, we don't really want it. You have to go to another journal. Uh, it was a lot of time and effort in terms of working with reviews to get them to the point that they were, they were um, publishable and then distributed in the form of the Cochrane Library. So that's how Cochrane started as a whole. Wonderful, yeah. Um, Giovanni, uh, you took a look at nephrology as a specialty, did the same exercise at the neonatal medicine. And I remember reading your paper some years ago, and I think it was eye-opening, you know, to see that nephrology also uh, lacks on uh, uh, good trials. Um, uh, and um, you compare to other specialities. How, how do you see that Cochrane uh, helped in that and helped uh, you in, in a way of spreading that message? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I was very enthusiastic to be reminded by Jonathan about the CDs. And just remember, I have like 300 of these CDs still in my office somewhere. Anyway, we, we did look in the very early time at the number, quality, and coverage of RCTs in nephrology. And it was actually quite interesting to see that this was lowest, the lowest compared to essentially any other branch of internal medicine in terms of number and quality really suboptimal and coverage 
pretty openly spread, but particularly focusing on hemodialysis and uh, transplant areas where uh, there was a lot of industry sponsorship for trials, etc., with many other areas largely uncovered. Um, this was a very um, relevant starting point because what we thought is that even given the fact that there were few and that their quality was suboptimal, we definitely needed to try and summarize this evidence as well as we could uh, for the readers. When we say there were few, we're still talking about a few thousands of trials, which are not the easiest thing to search and digest for the practicing clinician, etc. Plus, there was a need to inform policy by uh, really trying to summarize these data. Uh, certainly, Cochrane has focused on summarizing these trials in systematic reviews, of which we have at the moment close to 250. But to really tackle your question a bit more, specifically when it comes to the actual number of trials, um, there were at the time uh, only a few thousands within three to five thousands which were actually indexed in databases. So one thing that Cochrane undertook was actually the idea of developing a registry, a specialist registry of all clinical trials published in kidney disease. And the number uh, increased dramatically because a lot of these trials actually never get published. They get presented in uh, meetings, uh, they get published as conference proceedings, but several of them never really end up to being finally published in the literature. By actually doing this work, which I remember was a very tedious work being done by our trial search coordinators and with help and support from all of us who were bringing conference proceedings whenever we went and attended meetings, etc. The number has now grown up to almost 15,000 in the registry. Finally, Clearly, the interest and focus on trials, trial methodology, and summary of trials uh, has had an impact in nephrology, where we are actually observing now, if we were to do the same analysis we did at the time, which we have actually run uh, internally, that the actual number um, is having a, a rise. And uh, so nephrology is no longer the last, uh, it's ramping up, which is a very positive sign for us and which I personally believe is clearly one of the major contributions that this activity has boosted in the scientific society. Gosh, so a lot's changed then, Giovanni, thank you. Um, so we've gone from having gaps in knowledge, focusing just on hemo and transplant to a huge increase in the registry, including um, unpublished data to support um, Cochrane's work. It'd be really interesting to hear perhaps from Elizabeth what the key um, outputs of Cochrane have been over the years, but also what's next? You know, what do you think are the key projects at the moment that we can expect to, to see and hear, hear about? Hopefully not on a CD. I've been there a long time, but rather a junior member, and I've concentrated particularly on paediatrics and, and a paediatric nephrology. Um, I think the biggest 
the thing that I, I've um, become aware of um, is the the increase, uh, certainly the increase in number of randomised controlled trials in paediatric um, nephrology. Um, un unfortunately, that's not been associated with a great improvement in um, the quality of the studies. And um, it took us a little time um, in looking at this, particularly with steroid-sensitive neurotic syndrome, to realize that um, some of the results were in the systematic review were overestimating the, the efficacy of treatment um, because the studies were done um, poorly. The um, quality of the studies was, was poor. And, but I've, I think as a result of coming up with um, a piece of information, which has subsequently turned out to be wrong, uh, it galvanized um, a, at least four different um, uh, groups to do um, well-designed, adequately uh, powered system uh, uh, randomized controlled trials in this area, which um, uh, changed the conclusions of this um, uh, of that, that, this particular review. And and I think that's important that not only do we provide the um, do the systematic reviews and provide the evidence that but that people come around and challenge it. I think that's really important because steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome is relevant to adults as well. And having really good clinical trials in that area um, perhaps might not have happened if it hadn't been for the Cochrane review. And that drives improvement across the board, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was actually steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome. Alas, steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome in both children and adults has been very poorly served with, um, uh, with randomised controlled trials. So here's a call I mean, for somebody to do better. Exactly. I mean, I think I think it, it's hard not to overstate that in the last 20 years, there has been a complete transformation as to the use of evidence by practicing nephrologists. Nephrology has a very rich tradition of, uh, let's say, a pathophysiological basis of understanding disease, right? If we can understand the causal mechanisms then historically that's been sufficient to provide enough evidence to come up with an intervention. Nephrology has been full of examples where actually uh, those biological mechanisms and indeed registry studies have not only been wrong, but they've been harmful. You know, the classic case of uh, hemoglobin levels, right? You know, where Every cohort study showed that the higher levels of hemoglobin were associated with reduced all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. Um, and one of the reviews that Giovanni did early on was randomized trials of different uh, hemoglobin targets showing that actually uh, no elevated hemoglobin targets associated with increased uh, erythropoietin use were um, harmful. But of course, what do people say? Oh, no, you know, look at the registry studies. They all look the same. And this is not, the, you know, you put these people on it and they feel so much better. And and uh, it was only when I think TREAT came along, right, really, which was actually 10 years after pretty definitive evidence that actually high hemoglobin targets were actually harmful and killing people, 
uh, did the tide turn. FDA produced a black box warning, and there was systematic change in in uh, clinical practice worldwide. So, um, uh, you know the, that that transformation as to actually we need empiric evidence based upon randomized trials that when we give an intervention that it, that it leads to a net clinical benefit and nowadays right nowadays at all the major nephrology meetings the there's you know late breaking clinical trials there's there's you know there's acceptance that of course you need large scale randomized trials um, but you know 20 years ago it was a, it was a very different thing Elizabeth also made a very important point, which is that not all trials are the same. So even though it's a randomized trial, might even be published in a good journal, might even be published in, you know, New England Journal or Lancet or whatever, that if, if the study is not done right, if you have, uh, for example, um, uh, randomization processes that make that that mean that the two groups aren't comparable at the beginning, then you're going to get results which are, are particularly that that could be prone to bias. And so that's also been a you know a critical element. Yes, we need trials, but we also need trials that are done right, um, published right. Uh, just just a comment I was going to raise because I was thinking when Jonathan recalled the early review about hemoglobin target, it just reminded me also, I mean, there have been many reviews that have had a very strong impact. And these are actually coming from a very different trial basis. For example, with the hemoglobin targets review, there, there actually were not as many trials. There were few trials which individually were not really informative for uh, people because they were primarily focusing on surrogate endpoints or they were not adequately powered to look at the mortality. And when we started this hemoglobin target review, as Jonathan, we remember, we often said we didn't start very proud of this one. And then uh, almost magically, when you were summarizing the, the data, the impact that it made was incredibly strong. Uh, uh, there's another case, however, where the basis is really different. And I think Elizabeth might want to say something about it, which was another very eloquent review looking at antiviral prophylaxis for um, CMV in solid organ transplant recipients. Now, this is an area where there were a lot of trials. But simply the fact that they had not been summarized did not allow to uh, come to quite a strong statement on what should be done. And I say, and I, I don't know whether Elizabeth might want to say something. She embarked into this, which was really quite interesting. A lot of trial, but the message wasn't clear to the community. And the, the actual Cochrane review did change completely the scenario from a clinical standpoint and a policy standpoint. Um, I, it's it's a long time ago now, but um, um, certainly that that um, review that uh, we did with um, Giovanni and Jonathan and a whole lot of other people because it was a very it was a big review. It was one of the biggest that I had done at that stage. Um, did did um, show. Uh, con convincingly that um, CMV prophylaxis was effective in um, reducing the risk of, of CMV disease. Um, 
in in all all groups, but particularly in in CM the ones with uh, positive donors and negative recipients. Um, so I think I think it, it was an imp important review, um, and continues to be an important review because the alternative of using um, um, uh, courses of of prophylaxis at the time of of um, of positive uh, testing. Um, that's that was never as well documented, and from what I can um, understand, seems not to be um, uh, uh, used as much as the um, original prophylaxis. In terms of um, key developments, Meta, I think you ask a question about that. So I think um, methods have changed substantially. I mean, it started off pretty simple. It was basically pairwise comparison of randomized trials, right? And and uh, but since then, there's probably you know four, I think major, three or four major innovations. Uh, the first is that um, although intervention questions are informative for clinicians and patients, they also want to know a bunch of other questions like, you know, what what what's the Diagnostic, what's the test accuracy of a given test, let's say for TB or CMV or, or renal artery stenosis. And so uh, there have been a number of Cochrane reviews looking at uh, diagnostic test performance, both in absolute terms compared to a, rel a reference standard, the gold standard, the truth, if you like, and also comparison of one let's say, imperfect test to another imperfect test. Another question is around, you know, prognosis, what's going to happen to me over time? Uh, and so we can also look at the totality of evidence around that rather than just pick and choose um, individual studies that we happen to agree with. The third one is around a network meta-analysis, and Giovanni may wish to speak about that, but if we use diabetes as an example, um, clearly the question is not, you know, uh, one agent versus nothing. The question is, in the current um, pharma um, armamentarium, there's a whole bunch of agents, you know, SGLT2s and GLP1s, etc. So, you know, how how can we compare? Uh, what, how can we compare across different classes of drugs? And so this is a network meta-analysis, which allows us to compare directly where we've had got head-to-head -head, uh, studies and also indirectly when we've got a common comparative R placebo. And then, you know, more recently, a study is really only as good as the outcome. So if we do trials and an outcome, Giovanni kind of mentioned this before, if, for example, we just look at hemoglobin values, that's kind of going to be misleading if we then apply it in clinical practice. So uh, more recently, as part of the SONG initiative, the Standardized Outcomes and Nephrology Initiative, what we're keen to do is innovate in terms of core outcomes that are relevant across dialysis, uh, um, peritoneal, hemo, transplant, chronic kidney disease, based upon shared priorities, clinicians, patients, uh, researchers, policy makers, industry, so that um, 
both the reviews and the upstream randomized trials deal with outcomes that are most relevant to people and not make assumptions about most relevant to people or just measure that which is easy to, you know, that the study can be powered to detect and report rather than its fundamental importance to clinical decision-making. Yeah, I just was going to add a comment because Jonathan is reminding me a lot of things of our common history (laughs) as he speaks. I remember when we did the first analysis that was looking at the benefits and harms of uh, antihypertensive agents in patients with diabetic kidney disease. So we found... um, 43, if I remember well, 43 trials, which were basically uh, typically trials of an ACE inhibitor versus placebo or an angiotensin receptor blocker versus placebo. And at that time, we were really trying to also address the question of the comparative benefits and harms of ACE inhibitors versus ARBs. And the way we did it, we embarked upon uh, an indirect comparison, which by nature was very limited in its actual ability to adjust for potential differences within the trials, etc. Now, today, things have changed dramatically. Actually, at the time, a technology already existed to do this uh, kind of things, Uh, which was called network meta-analysis, but it was basically not used at all. And we introduced this uh, in our world and have done now several very complex network meta-analysis, which allow you to do these types of comparison. And uh, just to raise here that, you know, Edmund might want to comment, we have embarked recently in one that looks at uh, uh, the area of COVID. You know, and this is an area where you have a lot of different studies and you have a lot of uh, primarily cases reported. uh, um, And when you really want to compare things and you don't have direct comparison studies, whether it's intervention studies or prognostics or whatever, this technology comes quite uh, handy and it's actually now a reality. So within the most recent year, really what, Uh, we have observed is a lot of novel methods which allow now to do a lot more. In the early times, really, uh, these Cochrane systematic reviews were very simple uh, ways to summarize the existing trials uh, and actually very easy to do for the majority of people that were interested in young investigators, etc., Today, we have a lot more methodological complexity around that allows doing things like ranking different drugs for their benefits uh, in a specific population, even when there were no direct studies comparing them head to head, which is a very typical scenario in our area, uh, as well as many other areas. Uh, And also we have these methods that really allow you to summarize data from any type of studies. As I said, with Edmund, what we have found recently is, you know, in the COVID area, you have a lot of case reports and case series. And are people going to be able to read all of this stuff or is there a way to summarize it somehow? Well, the technology today allows us to do that. 
Yeah, thank you, Giovanni. Um, uh, so we worked on a prognostic review in COVID, specifically looking at whether CKD uh, conferred a, a worse outcome or increased incidence um, in people with COVID. Um, uh, it was very well known that CKD was uh, a poor prognostic marker when compared to no CKD, but I think a lot of people would have expected that already. And we kind of looked at it in, an, in, in almost the reverse sense, looking at different stages of CKD, whether they had pre-dialysis CKD, they had um, CKD dependent on dialysis, or whether they had kidney transplant, uh, or people undergoing kidney transplantation and had subsequently gone COVID, where that conferred an increased risk of getting the disease as well as worse outcomes. Uh, and at least for me, interestingly, we found that um, the incidence of disease was actually high in people with dialysis uh, compared to pre-dialysis and even transplant recipients, which could be as a result of people especially receiving hemodialysis, having more exposure to healthcare settings. Um, but interestingly, the outcomes uh, were not particularly different when they actually got the disease. So, Edmund, you've got stuff involved with the, with Cochrane early doors. Um, I'm sure the other people won't mind me saying that you, you look a couple of years younger than the others. Um, so certainly when I was um, younger, um, I thought Cochrane was too complicated and was way beyond anything I could ever do. Um, how, how did you get involved? And what would you say to other people who are listening to this uh, and might be interested? Oh, yeah, no, that's a great question because I think I would have had exactly the same mindset going into this. And I probably uh, was quite fortunate because through my Masters of Clinical Epidemiology at University of Sydney, I did a course, I think uh, Professor Craig and Giovanni Strapoli kind of conceptualised on actually just performing a systematic review and just uh, doing that under the uh, tutelage and uh, of Giovanni who took me under his wing I think really helped me uh, gain a lot of appreciation for the processes that were involved, how they thought through problems and dealt with it in a very systematic way. And it kind of paired with how uh, Cochrane, uh, particularly with this uh, Cochrane handbook uh, on how to perform systematic reviews is all freely available. And I felt quite easy to digest, particularly if you could also ask someone like Giovanni and subsequently I had a lot of um, kind of help uh, in developing my my understanding of systematic reviews with Suetonia Palmer as well, who's intimately involved with Cochrane as well. So I think I've been in a quite a fortunate position uh, to receive such good advice. Well, guys, that was a fantastic discussion. I truly enjoyed it, uh, hearing more about the history, the present and the future of uh, Cochrane kidney transplant. Uh, thanks so much for participating. It's time to close. I wanted to um, uh, thank all of you for contributions and um, I'm sure that the listeners will enjoy that very much. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you very much.